Welcome. This is Josh Allen Friedman with Tales of My Dead Heroes. Here on episode 9, we'll visit the music office of Joel Dorn, one of the last record producers standing from the old music biz, which was run by Renaissance Italians and Jewish hucksters. Let me tell you about it. The moment I got out of high school in 1974, I landed a job at Regent Sound Studios on 57th Street in Manhattan. It was a 24-hour record-making factory. Sessions in two studios booked round the clock. My primary function was microphone setup man. I arrived each morning at the crack of dawn to open Studio A. I followed a daily chart positioning mics, chairs, music stands, and ashtrays for that morning's big band, orchestra, or some album session. I'd break everything down at the end of the session, then set right up for the next. Musicians streamed in at 9 a.m. like factory workers to Regent Sound. I never heard these hardened local 802 musicians discuss the aesthetics of music. They only talked about money, how much they'd logged at other sessions, overtime, residuals. But the elite double-scale guys, like Fathead Newman, Ron Carter, Steve Gadd, Cornell Dupree, or Chuck Rainey, they seemed above the battle, smoking pipes, dressed like squires, flying in from Newport or Montreux jazz festivals. They'd cab it to three sessions per day. The primary record man at Regent Sound was Joel Dorn. He was a jazz producer at Atlantic Records through the 1960s, but was now riding hot off a string of hits like Roberta Flack's Killing Me Softly and Where Is the Love? Dorn's offices were right there on the third floor, part of Regent Sound. See, doing an interview with you is odd. Because you, you were around a lot of stuff. When you were around at that time, my work, what I was doing, very intense. Real intense, you know. Regent had ten employees and was owned by one of the recording industry's most respected engineers, Robert Lifton. I indirectly worked for Dorn, also. He produced up to five albums at the same time. This whole operation was part of the old record business. Here's Joel's famous basso profundo voice, reminiscing with me in 2000. Excuse the poor quality, it was just a cassette player on the table used for notes. We had no idea I'd present this in 18 years. There was an old record business and there's a new record business. The old record business was run by a combination of insane fanatical music companies. It's a hustler's tough guy. Uh, guys with exquisite taste. Dorn was a tough guy with exquisite taste. He was ruggedly handsome, like a switchblade-toting rabbi. When he heard someone he thought was unique, a certain bell went off in his head, and he signed them. It was a different time. Each city was like, they were like little city-states, like Sparta, you know what I mean? Athens. They were city-states. All the different places. You could broke a record a city at a time. It was this magnificent cottage industry. And then, what I was trying to say to you before was things changed. And they became real businesses. Big American business. So real business people came in. Now there were lawyers walking around with fucking neighbors, you know, listening to the Grateful Dead. Now there were lawyers walking around with fucking Nehru suits listening to The Grateful Dead with headphones. 
I remember when this change came about in the early 70s. Music became a part of everybody's business. Transamerica, Warner Seven Arts, Gulf and Western. Instead of buying a steel mill, they'd buy a record company. And they ruined everything. I started out like at the top. I started out working at Atlantic Records. Primus or the height of its power. And yet it was a mom and pop in, a mom and pop place. Mom and pop place that about forty million a year back then. Well, it was a mom and pop place that had gone from Ray Charles and John Coltrane and Bobby Darren and Joe Turner and the Coasters and the Drifters uh, to uh, the Almond Brothers, Cream, Led Zeppelin, Otis Redding. You know, when they sold it, it was. It's some Kinney parking lots. Kinney parking lots. Only a few other producers who started out with Dorn in the early 60s were still active in the year 2000 when we spoke here. Producers like Phil Ramone, Arif Mardin, Tommy LaPuma. Just how many of Dorn's competitors did he see knocked out of the biz? Hundreds. I can't even tell you. But there were guys who were giants for 11 months year and a half. The genius of the week. Yeah. Joel Dorn began as a staff producer at Atlantic Records Jazz. Throughout the 1960s, there were plenty of jazz singles that became huge hits on radio, like The Girl from Ipanema from Stan Getz and Astrid Gilberto, or The In Crowd from Ramsey Lewis. It's hard to believe today. Dorn kept this tradition going a while longer when he signed Bette Midler, and Roberta Flack in 1969. Roberta Flack, we, I, when I signed her, we put her in the uh, in the jazz category. She was like a, like a chicken played piano and sang, you know, so sang in jazz. But did you find her out of nowhere, or, or less we with him? What had happened was, what would occur before he became our sign, called me one morning. He was in D.C. and he said, I got somebody for you to sign. I said, who's that? He said, it's a girl in Roberta Flack. My best player's wife. What does she sound like? Innocent question, you know. He got upset. He said, he got upset and he said, she sounds like a colored lady. Slammed a fucking phone. So I never followed up. And then Les McCann called one time. Early in the morning, two times in the row, two guys like this. But I mean, I always thought she was good. I had no idea, you know, she could be that it was too much of a quality thing. You could get a hit by mistake like Eddie Jones got with Don't Go to Strange. Then she did get one first. Dorn scored back-to-back records of the year with Roberta Flack's first time ever I saw your face and Killing Me Softly. She'd been the wife of Rossan Roland Kirk's bass player, so Dorn was riding high. Blind jazz man Rossan Roland Kirk entered the studio at Regent Sound, followed by his tribe of black classical musicians. They shuffle down the halls like a fighter's entourage entering the ring. Kirk swung a mojo cane, scattering all in his path. The novelty aspect of Kirk was that he played three horns at once in his mouth, sometimes including an African nose flute. I wasn't sure where to place the microphone for this arrangement, and called him by his first name, Roland. The entire tribe froze. Don't ever call him that, one side man threatened. His name is 
Rasan, came another. Or you can call him Ra for short, said a third. Kirk recorded three pretentious double albums for Atlantic while I was at Regent. Prepare Thyself to Deal with a Miracle was one, produced by Dorn, of course. Black classical music is how he termed his jazz, espousing a jazz victim philosophy while hating rock and the white man's music. But the tribe let down their guard in the wee hours of the night in the warm glow of that studio console. Their bravado diminished, and you could see they were just poor musicians. Now we gathered here on the universe at this time, this particular time, to listen to the 36 black notes of the piano. There's 36 black notes and 52 white notes. We don't mean to eliminate nothing, but we're going to just hear the black notes at this time, if you don't mind. Blackness, B-L-A-C-K-N-U-S-S. By the 1980s, the new corporate formula music industry with MTV had pushed Joel Dorn out, but he didn't take it lying down. He had hundreds of old reel-to-reels from Regent Sound. CD box sets came about. This allowed him to repackage dozens of new compilations on labels like Rhino. For instance, he discovered the original tapes for John Coltrane's Giant Steps, lost and rotting in an old warehouse. Because everybody had looked for Coltrane tapes on Atlantic, and there was nothing left. Everything Coltrane had ever done on Atlantic was out. So I'm floating around this warehouse, right? And it's a pigsty. And there's water coming from the roof, dropping down on boxes of tapes. So I went over where that was. I figured if there's going to be something valuable, it would be in the wrong place, you know? sure that uh, <laughs> Debbie Gibson's tapes were encased in lead. But, uh, so I go over to this thing and I said to the guy who was running over one of the warehouse, and I said, what's over there? He said, that's slop. It's all in alphabetical order, but it's just, you know, shit. I said, good. I'm going to go play there. I remember the water was coming in through the roof. I mean, it's like boxes of outtakes of giant stuff. in my The studio conversation and all of this. And it was an incredible collection of things. We could actually trace the development of giant steps. It was all the breakdowns in the studio. And not just alternate takes or, you know, unreleased crap just for the sake of it. You know, five unreleased tracks. Well, there's a reason most shit's unreleased, because it's stunk. But I found shit that was incredible. Well, John Coltrane's always going to sell a lot of his great stuff. But we made it into something. It was a story. It was like $99. We sold about $100. That's a hit box. All of a sudden, they needed guys for box sets, said Dorn, and he was back in business. He told me, you could get a chimpanzee to say John Coltrane recorded the following six albums, and here they are in a box. But we started coming up with unreleased material, pictures you'd never seen, alternate takes, lost sessions, and live stuff never heard. Documentaries. While I'm in the warehouse, I'm at C, Coltrane. So I start looking, I figured, well, what's it D? The first box I pick up, right? Bobby Darren says, 
demo, Seattle radio station, Dream Lover. Dorn gave the Dream Lover demo to Rhino's Bobby Darren box set. Joel Dorn produced Don McLean's fourth album, Homeless Brother, recorded at Regent Sound. It wasn't too long after American Pie and Vincent, so the pressure was on this poor guy to come up with more hits. He recorded in Studio A every day, breaking to watch Nixon's resignation. As I set up his mics every day, I remember McLean saying, the critics don't understand me, with genuine angst. The single Dorn released was called La La Love You, which was a somewhat bland rock and roll track. The should-have-been hit was Wonderful Baby, an Irving Berlin-like ditty that entered high for a few weeks on the easy listening chart. Fred Astaire himself later recorded it. Like a guy like Don McLean, he had a he had a uh, a commercial upside. You know, if you do a certain kind of thing, the plane could sell records. Yeah. yeah, but the real the real hit on that record was a thing called Wonderful Baby. Yes. Well, now you couldn't market that at that time. It would have been a let me tell you what happened. Let me tell you on the radio. No, it wasn't. There used to be a chart called the Easy Listening Chart, and that was a, it came on number one on the Easy Listening Charts the first couple of weeks. And then the plane's manager, Earth Garth, had a down, drag out, screaming. He ran UA. Mike Stewart. He ran UA. And he killed the record. Wonderful baby, living on love. The Sandman says maybe he'll take you above. Up where the girls fly on ribbons and bows, where babies float by. I like the birds. Just counting when they were, you know, Ira Tucker and them not the birds. I know, not with a lion. Winning those people. You know. No, the bird, the Dixie Hummingbird. They yeah. called the bird. Yeah. Joel Dorn was so hip that when he referred to the birds, he meant the Dixie Hummingbirds of gospel fame, not the B-Y-R-D birds of Turn, Turn, Turn and Mr. Tambourine Man. Dorn, like myself, loved the old gospel quartets best. Maybe that was because they were recorded better, just four guys around one mic whereas the gospel choirs were all spread out before the mic. He produced three albums with gospel singer Marion Williams and relates this story about the legendary Swan Silvertones singer who invented falsetto soul, the Reverend Claude Jeter. I did a version of Bridge Over Troubled Water with the Bird of Life. And I got the Newark Boys Choir to come in. And then they were a little flat, so I brought Susie Houston and her girls in. And then at the very end of it, Roberta holds the note, choir singing and anybody who knew anything about gospel music knew that Paul Simon had caught the line, bridge over troubled water, up with a swan silver. guy that was producing these records, we were making a lot of money with Roberta, so I really wanted a bad. I just wanted Claude Jeter at the mm. end of the record to just go, just in that high voice and just say, I'll be your bridge up. So uh, I call up this guy that's producing, the gospel producer at the second. I said, listen, uh, I'm a record producer. I produce Roberta Flack. 
with finishing an album. This did bring you into troubled waters. And I would like Mr. Judy to come in and say one line at the end of it where he says, I'll be your bridge over troubled waters. And it just be in the, in the background. I wanted to document that. I wanted Claude Jeter to fucking write First, he didn't believe I, that I produced the bird of black. I said, no, I really do. I said, tell me, you want my number? You can call me back. Call Atlantic Records and ask him. So after he got over that, uh, I said, look, I'd like to. He said, well, what would you pay him? So I just didn't think. I said, like, I'll give him a thousand bucks to come in and sing in one line. A lot of money in those days. You would pay someone to do a background vocal anywhere from unions, you know, union scale, uh, 50 to 100 dollars. So that was kind of standard. So I said, I'll give him a jib, give him a thousand bucks. And the guy said, just a minute. You think I was born yesterday? What do you think? I'm a fool. No one's going to give anybody. I said, Phew. I said, I'll give you the, I said, tell me where you are, and I'll walk the thousand over now. I'll give you the grand now. So this isn't a problem. No, I don't think any. I said, listen, I just want him to sing the one line. I'll give him a thousand dollars. If you don't believe me, will you at least give me the chance to hand you the thousand bucks? And then you got the thousand. No, this is some kind of trick. And I, I finally said, yeah, I'll talk to you later. And I couldn't get it. And it's really bucks. 50 bucks I probably would have gotten. The iconoclastic record producer, Hal Wilner, came into Regent Sound in 1974, shortly after me, right out of high school. He just sat there and watched Dorn, while I worked setting up whole floor plans of microphones on booms and hauled hundreds of tapes and equipment. Hal grew up near Dorn in Philly. I thought, who is this kid just gets to sit there and watch while I'm busting my ass all day? And Wilner got college credit for being there. Well, I dropped out of my first semester at NYU to keep the job. Dorn gave us both our first tiny album credits on a 1975 Dory Previn album. Hal was at NYU. Hal was like, you know, my life. Go for a protege, whatever, you, you know, whatever it was where you stuck as I went from Philly. And like the second year, he'd come every night after school, you know, and sit there. He was my teacher. Kate Smith, you know, Roland Kirk. Francis Fay, I mean, he met this crew of people, Joe Venuti, the Drifters, whoever floated through there. And uh, the second year on, his attending that lunatic scene was considered a class. And I was his teacher, and I used to give him a grade. I gave him A plus every he semester. College, he got college, college credits for oh, hanging shit. in the region. Let me tell you something. If any of those teachers would have come up there and seen what was going on, to me, the most romantic lighting in New York was the glow of a studio console at midnight at Regent Sound Studios. It was a soundproofed windowless sanctum, dark but for the red VU meters and faders, like the inside of a musical jet cockpit. If I needed a little blue palette, Joel Dorn might say, I'll call Fathead Newman. If I need to add a little red to the canvas, I call in Hank Crawford, said Joel. In each musician, he saw a unique coloring, a different brushstroke. A conceit of Dorn's was to pair Kate Smith on a duet with John Lennon, because it amused him. The old chestnut, smile, smile, smile. I couldn't get Lennon, said Dorn, so I got Dr. John instead. 
It was released as an Atlantic Records single, just the kind of frivolity that finally got the major labels fed up with Joel. Dr. John told me, I remember meeting Kate and her bodyguard. I'm thinking, this 300-pound bitch needs a fucking bodyguard? Dorn's last major signing for the labels had been the Neville Brothers, which he went through hell to get signed. He was fed up with the major record companies and started his own small jazz labels. And then, at the time we're talking here, in 2000, he scored a hit jazz album with Jane Monheit, moving 10,000 copies a week. Joel Dorn, known as the masked announcer on Philadelphia Jazz Radio in the early 60s, passed away suddenly at the age of 65 in 2007. It's unexpected, way too soon. Joel's son, Adam Dorn, known as Motion Worker, created his own electro-swing brand of jazz, and Joel's son, David, is a music industry executive in L.A. Joel Dorn, the masked announcer, was one of the last men standing from the old American music business. This is Josh Allen Friedman with Tales of My Dead Heroes. You can read the complete stories of this season's podcast in my book, Tell the Truth Until They Bleed. Visit our website for photos and playlists at blackcracker.fm. See you next time. Your face.